My sin, oh the bliss of the glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. I love that verse. That one excites me every time we get to it. Uh, what he has done for us. We're going to uh, reflect on that this morning as we go back to Psalm 24 and move on to a couple more verses today. Verse number uh, 3 three and 4 will be our focus. This is our series. Who is this King of Glory? That's our question. And the psalm is giving us the answer. Who is this King of Glory? Today, verse 3, verse 4. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and has not sworn deceitfully. Heavenly Father, we're going to need a great deal of your work in our lives here this morning. As we contemplate these words, they are very important words, and they have something to do with us very personally. And I pray, Lord, that as we spend our time here in your word today, that you will guide us and direct us in your truth, challenge us thoroughly with what we hear, change lives, Lord, that some might be here this morning in great need of hearing these words. And I pray that you do your great work in our midst, for we know that your word does not return to you void. It accomplishes what you set out for it to do. And we count on that today as we spend time in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the context of our psalm here, David is magnifying the king of glory all the way through from verse 1 all the way to the end. The Lord of hosts is the king of glory. The first two verses we've talked about over the last few weeks are the facts concerning him. He is the owner and the creator of this world. It says the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Those are the facts that we've already began our study with, and we've looked at that. Now today, in verse 3, it actually goes all the way down into verse number 6 in its context, but today we won't go that far. We enter a very significant part of our study, a question and answer section, and it raises what one commentary said, the all-important question. The all-important question. Who? may ascend into the hill of the Lord. Related to it, who may stand in his holy place? Who? That's the question. Who? Now, I'm going to start with some definitions, uh, just so we get a, a good feel for this type of passage that we're about to enter here. There's a lot of assumptions, and I've seen that even in the uh, variety of commentaries I research and, and uh, study from. I see their inputs and, and such like that. And more times than not, when you read verse number 3, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, they automatically say, oh, that's Jerusalem. That's almost a default setting, I think, 
to say it is Jerusalem. After all, David had said earlier in uh, Psalm number 2, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And they say, well, there's a related concept between Jerusalem being Zion. Perhaps you've heard that word before and always wondered, what is that? That was a nickname of sorts for Jerusalem, was Zion. And it did sit upon a hill. And as a result of that, uh, they associate the hill of the Lord, Zion, Jerusalem. They put all those terms together, kind of stir it up, and they have this answer. The hill of the Lord must be Jerusalem. Uh, now, David has used that term Zion before in, in his Psalms, but he did not say it here. He could have, but he did not say that word. He just said the hill of the Lord. So, hold that thought. Second thing, we go with another assumption. When we say the holy place, what's the first thought on your mind? Temple. Right? A lot of them do that. The holy place, where's that at? In the temple. Who could stand in the holy place? The temple. That's an that's a automatic statement I found also in the commentaries. We're talking about the temple here. After all, it did have a holy place, didn't it? Matter of fact, it had two places. It had the holy place and it had the holy of holies. You're familiar with that phrase. And uh, what's interesting about that, when I saw that reference brought up every time, the temple, the temple, the temple, there's the reference to it. In David's day, the temple did not exist. It's kind of hard to write about a temple when it's not there. Now, what did David have? A tabernacle. Oh, a tabernacle. Is that a different thing? Yeah. Now, generally, the use was the same. The tabernacle used in the Old Testament later became the temple that we read of in the, New, in the Old Testament as well. But the tabernacle was in existence in David's day. It wasn't until Solomon's day, David's son, that the temple was constructed. Now, this is kind of interesting here, too, because the tabernacle, to trace its history, you'd go back to 1445 B.C. That's about 500 years before this psalm is written. About that much time. And that's when Moses, when they came out of Egypt, the great exodus, and they went to Mount Sinai, he was given instructions on how to construct the tabernacle. That's sections of the Old Testament people just kind of scan through quickly when they're trying to read through the Bible in a year. They say, oh, it's all about tent pegs and ropes and, and porpoise skins and things like that. And so they, they tend to go through that section very quickly. But that was the tabernacle that Moses had constructed back in 1445, 1446 B.C. Now, primarily, it was a tent. It was a tent with two rooms. Two-thirds of it was the holy place. One-third was the holy of holies. If you were to walk through it, you would notice in the holy place, the initial room that you would enter, there was a candlestick there, which is handy because there were no windows. And there was a table of what they called the showbread. They had to bring fresh bread in there and set it before the Lord. And there was an uh, altar for incense where they would put frankincense and things on that altar and burn it every day. A sweet smell that would rise up inside that holy place. But there was a great veil that was between these two rooms, and you've heard of the veil before. And right on the other side of that veil, in that little room called the Holy of Holies, was one piece of furniture. The Ark of the Covenant. 
It sat in that room with the mercy seat on top of it and two angelic beings carved out staring at each other. But the, it sat inside that uh, great room called the Holy of Holies. Now what we know about that is that the high priest, only the high priest, could enter that Holy of Holies one time a year. The Day of Atonement, that was the only time he could go in there. So for the rest of the year, the room, nobody could access it. That was the way God designed it. But the holy place was a place where ministry went on daily. All the priests that were serving in the temple or the tabernacle area would enter into the holy place, into the holy place. They'd be exchanging the bread out. They'd be offering the, the uh, incense offering. They'd be lighting the candles and keeping them lit as they should. But that was a, a very common place for priestly ministry, the holy place. Now, this tabernacle was a tent, so it was portable. Imagine this. For 40 years, they moved that thing. They would construct it in a spot where the Lord said, stop here. And they would mount it, and they'd put the pegs down and pound the, the, the pegs and tie the ropes and all these things. And they would set up that tabernacle until the Lord said, move. And then they'd go and they'd pull it all up again, fold it up, carry it off to the next spot. God would say, set it up here. And for 40 years in the wilderness, they kept moving the tabernacle from place to place to place and such like that. Now, when they finally got to the days of Joshua and they entered into the promised land, they crossed Jordan River, if you recall. When they got on the other side of the Jordan River, they fought the Battle of Jericho and a couple of other battles there. And then they set up a spot right there outside of Jericho, a place called Gilgal. They set up a place for the tabernacle to set. And they mounted it there, and it sat there for 30 years. Didn't move. 30 years while they conquered the land. There the tabernacle sat for all those years. And then, as soon as they conquered the land, they established a place called Shiloh. You ever hear that name? Shiloh. They said, that's where we're going to put our tabernacle. So they moved the tabernacle over to Shiloh. It was only about 20 miles or so away from Gilgal, but they set it up there. And it sat there, erected, for 300 years. That's quite a tent. 300 years it sat in that spot. Incredible. So, they had this, this was a very common site for generations, that you go to Shiloh if you're going to worship. That was all the way up to the time of Samuel, Samuel the prophet. Now, what took place when Samuel was very young was there was a battle going on against the Philistines and Israel thought it was a smart idea to take the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle. So they gathered it up out of the Holy of Holies there in the tabernacle. In case you're wondering, how did they do that? The reality is with this tent, the pegs, the, the carrying pegs, the poles, stuck outside the tent. Right? So all they had to do was collapse it on top of it and pick it up and walk. So they would carry that off into the, the battle with them. They lost the battle. They also lost the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines captured it. Said, hey, we just bought their God. We got their God. So they took it. There's a long story there. But they didn't like it. They had to return it. There's a big story to that one too. But they brought it back. They put it on a cart pulled by oxen. Here comes the Ark of the Covenant down the street. Nobody watching it. Just walking down the street behind a couple of oxen on a cart. They said, wow, this thing is important. What do we do? They found the nearest house 
in Kirjath uh, Jerium was the name of the town. They said, hey, stop right here. Let's put it up. There was a Levite family living there. They put it in this guy's house to watch over the Ark of the Covenant. Kind of a weird scenario there. But what's interesting was they set it in this guy's house and left it there. We're talking about a long period of time. All the way through the ministry of Samuel, which was almost 40 years, you've got the ministry of Saul, the ministry, the reign of Saul, 40 years, and then enter into the reign of David. You have almost 100 years. The ark is sitting in this guy's house. The tabernacle is sitting up there in Shiloh. Very interesting scenario there. Nobody did anything else about it. Who wanted to go to worship at a tabernacle that didn't have the ark? The the fact was that uh, there was some lack of interest. It didn't help that King Saul had the, the spiritual temperature of a cold cucumber. It's interesting in the Old Testament and still true today, leaders tend to set the tone for spiritual things. And that was very true in his day. There was very little interest in the tabernacle. Now, this thing is now 500 years old, this tabernacle. And it's not thought of very much at the time because it's arkless. In comes David. We have this psalm being written. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? The temple does not exist and the tabernacle was somewhat discarded by the time this is mentioned for a place of worship. What do you think he was thinking of? A tabernacle? I don't think so. I don't think he was thinking of the tabernacle at all. Maybe he was being prophetic. All right? Some people say, well, maybe he's just being prophetic. He, he envisioned the temple. He envisioned the ark in the temple. After all, it was David who had it moved to Jerusalem at this time. And so maybe he, he was thinking about the temple being constructed and the presence of the Lord in that place. And maybe, I don't know. However, I do conclude this. When David thought about the Lord being in a place to be worshipped, He was thinking of the Lord in his rightful throne room in the heavenly places. He was thinking of a spiritual holy place. That's where God would dwell. That's where God would would have his presence. After all, his greatness is far beyond what this earth can contain. Solomon himself, when the temple was constructed, said, uh, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, much less this house which I have built. So they had already been recognizing that the Lord didn't live in a little box. And he didn't live in a little cabinet of a room. And he didn't live in a tent. God's holy place was where his presence was in in spiritual circles, in heavenly circles. Now Isaiah would write this later. He says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you can build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? So, considering those things, what is the question here? I think what David is asking in this psalm, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He's talking about entering into the presence of the Lord to worship him. 
Alright? Entering into the presence of the Lord to worship Him. He had just given us a magnificent statement about the Lord. The glory of the Lord in owning and creating all this world. Let me give you a, a glimpse of the greatness of our God. According to Psalm 104, listen to these words. I'm, I'm just going to read you the psalm because I don't know even where to stop. There's 35 verses here, but it's a magnificent psalm. Use your your imagination to to visualize what is being said here. Alright? As this psalm was written, Psalm 104, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the water. He makes the chariots, or the clouds, his chariot. He walks on the winds, wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountain. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose in the valley, sank down in the place which you established them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over, so that they will not return to cover the earth. He sends forth springs in the valleys that flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle. Vegetation for the labor of men so that they may bring forth food from the earth. And wine which makes a man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil. And food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill. The cedars of Lebanon which he planted where the birds build their nest and the stork whose home is in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are the refuge for the sephirim. Uh, he made the moon for the season. The sun knows the place of its setting. You appointed darkness, and it became night, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey. They seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw, and they lie down in their dens. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. O Lord, how many are your works! In wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is a sea, great and broad, in which swarms without number. Animals are both small and great, and the ships move along, and the Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. They all wait for you to give them their food in their due season. You give to them, they gather it up, you open your hands, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to Him. And as for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. 
Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Wow, where'd that come from? We were in the middle of praise, weren't we? Look at that phrase. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord. Bless, oh my soul, praise the Lord. It almost seems like we can do well without verse 35. All of a sudden, there it is. But you know what? That's quite a picture. When you speak of the glory of God, the greatness of God, he didn't even go into the holiness of God here. But who is man that we could stand in his presence? Who are we that we could ascend to the hill of the Lord? It says, let sinners be consumed. When Paul writes in the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says these words in verse 14 through 16. You who keep the commandments without stain or reproach until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. That's an awesome scene, isn't it? Who is man? It says, Whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Who shall ascend? That's the question. Who shall ascend? Who is going to go and stand before this God? That's our question. Verse 4 answers it. He who has a pure has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. There's only four qualifications here. Sounds easy, doesn't it? You ever fill out forms where you have to qualify in more ways than four? There's only four here. That sounds easy. What's it say? First, he better have clean hands. All you moms know that phrase. You better have clean hands. Right? Blameless is the word. Guiltless. Abstinence from doing evil. He that has clean hands. You know, a priest, when he goes into that holy place to worship, and even before the sacrifices are given, he has to wash his hands. There's a giant laver outside in the, the courtyard area of the holy place where he should wash his hands first before he could enter in and minister before the Lord. He was required to wash his hands. When I was uh, young, my dad had a garage off on the side of the yard there. He worked on cars, and often I would go down there to help him, mostly hand him tools while he did the work. But uh, at the end of uh, our project, it was time to clean up. We couldn't go into the house looking like that. You know, there was grease everywhere. And so we had this, this hand cleaner we'd you know, start cleaning. You guys know that too well. And then we'd look for a rag to dry it on, to wipe it off. And the goal was to find the less greasiest rag. And that's the one we considered the cleanest to dry our hands on, right? You know the story. You find the one with the less grease. How often spiritually do we say, well, we need clean hands in order to go into the presence of the Lord and we cover it or do righteous deeds to somehow cover up dirty hands. 
It's no different in picture because Isaiah tells us that our righteous deeds are like what? Filthy rags. Are we likely to clean our hands with doing good? No. Can't do it. How do you clean your hands? He says, that's the one who can come before me is one with clean hands. Now there's a problem. So let's try number two. Maybe it's better. Pure hearts. A pure heart. Abstinence from evil thought. Uh Uh-oh. This is an innocent heart. How often do we read that you can wash the outside of the cup, but the inside remains filthy? How often do we clean the platter on one side, but the other side is dirty? Remember, Pharisees were confronted for that, weren't they? They were like whitewashed sepulchers. The outside, they look pretty. They're white and shiny. What's on the inside? Dead man's bones. We sometimes will do that too. We'll polish up the outside and make ourselves presentable to walk before the Lord. Yet He is the one who sees the heart. He sees the heart, right? Who is the one who can ascend before Him? Who is the one who can stand in His presence? He who has a pure heart. How are we doing so far? Well, we still have two more to go. Let's be optimistic here. So let's try this one. He has not lifted up his soul to falsehood. You might have the word vanity there. It's the same word that kind of revolves in the neighborhood of idolatry, by the way. Scripture says that he who loves God cannot love the world. Right? God doesn't want half a heart. He doesn't want half a heart. You cannot serve God and mammon. Have you ever read that verse? What's that say? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He knows our tendency to idolatry. Our tendency to cling to things that are vain and perishable. Things that have no value whatsoever. We give ourselves to love the things that will not last. And yet all the while he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. He says, you come before me, but don't lift up your soul to falsehood. Can you see the picture? Your soul, your most precious thing, and you're offering it up to something that has no value. And yet we think, well, Lord, that's on Monday. It's Sunday that we come to worship you. So we think that he's satisfied that we've given him one day out of seven. He says, I want them all. I want them all. I want your whole heart. Not one-seventh of it. So, okay, so maybe we can't do that one either. Let's try this one. He hasn't sworn deceitfully. That's our last option. We were holding out for this one maybe. False speaking. Lie. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Spurgeon said, False speaking will shut any man out of heaven, for a liar shall not enter into God's house, whatever may be his professions or doings. You know, that is true. Every time you see a list that God says, These people will not be in my presence, they will not enter into heaven, they will not be there, liars is always on the list. We have... We have whitewashed that too and call them only white lies, right? Does God know the difference? 
Spurgeon said, God will have nothing to do with liars except to cast them into the lake of fire. Every liar is a child of the devil and will be sent home to his father. A false declaration, a fraudulent statement, a cooked account, a slander, a lie. All of these may suit the assembly of the ungodly, but they are detestable among true saints. How could they have fellowship with the God of truth? How could they? Okay, so how'd we do? There were four options here. Four things. We were looking to qualify somehow. But David dealt with our hands. He dealt with our hearts. He dealt with our devotion. He dealt with our words. Say you got three out of four. Doing pretty good in most circles. But what about ascending before the Lord? Not in regard to holiness. Does three quarters count? He wants all of that. All of that. So, who may ascend into the holy presence of God? There's only one answer regarding man, and it's this. No one. No one. As far as man is concerned, no one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? It only takes one sin. Only one! Now, we've lived on this earth for a little while now. Some of us above the 50s in years. One. One was enough to declare us a sinner. Only four qualifications. Now, that's hard. Because that's a question, who can ascend? Here's the second question, now who can stand there? That's even harder than the first question. It's one thing to try to scramble your way up the hill. It's another thing to be able to stand when you're in his presence. For many years, we went to a parade in LaPorte, Indiana for the 4th of July. It was well known in that county, and, and uh, many people would come and line up the streets of that city for this parade. And the way they initiated the parade every year, there was an Air Force base in nearby town. They would bring out one of their jets, F-15s or whatever. I don't even know what it was. But it would start the parade by a flyover. Well, these guys had a lot of fun with the flyover. And they'd come down low enough that it scared us to death. Matter of fact, you'd see it go by. You'd say, oh, that wasn't too bad. And then what came? The sound. You want to see if 2,000 people hit the ground? That was like, everybody down. The power, the sound of that machine as it zoomed by. And we were all ducking. We thought, we're doomed. That incredible sound that came with that. Now that's just what man can do. What can God do? Consider his power. Consider his awesomeness. His holiness. When he wanted to give the law, back in Exodus, when he was giving the law for several days before that, he had the mountain fenced off so no one could come to it. It was shaking, it was smoking, there was a trumpet blasting from up there somewhere, and it scared the people to death. That was just initiating them into who they're going to talk to. Some people have this, this idea that I'm just going to walk up before God and we're just going to have this conversation and make things right. <laughs> Not likely. 
Not this God. He's a powerful God. I don't know anybody who's able to stand in his presence as a man. We shall fall on our faces. That's the least of it. It says in Scripture, in Psalm 1, verse 4 and 5, concerning the wicked, the wicked are not so, they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. We have a picture of the judgment day when man comes and stands before God and God speaks to them and tells them why they did this wrong and that wrong. Man will not be standing there, they'll be lying flat before that throne. Man cannot stand in the presence of a holy God, especially when he is a wicked man. A wicked man shall not stand in the judgment. Sinners will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. So the question is now quickly answered, isn't it? Who shall stand before him? None shall stand before him. As one said, none shall, for there is none so. Dust is our matter, not so clean. Defiled is our nature, not so pure. The answer is, I can't. I can't. In the Old Testament, knowing yourself to be a sinful person, you came to that place of sacrifice at the tabernacle. You would bring your bull or you'd bring your sheep, whatever you were to offer at that. You would lay your hands on it. You would confess your sins. Then the priest would take that animal and would slay it and drain its blood into a basin. And then they would cut it up into its pieces and toss it upon the, the uh, altar the, for a burnt offering. But that even that priest who is ministering on your behalf concerning your sin, that priest also had issues with sin too. And scripture says that even he had to stand before the Lord, but he was a sinner. So how can he do it? He had to offer two sacrifices. One for you, and one for himself. As Hebrews would write it, the book of Hebrews chapter 5, every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God to offer up both gifts and sacrifices for sins, and he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself is also beset with the weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sin. As for the people, so also for himself. Now, with that phrase comes something that I call very good news. We have a high priest. His name is Jesus Christ. He is a different kind of priest. He is the perfect priest. According to Hebrews chapter 7, you could follow these words in verse 25 through 27. He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them, it is fitting that we have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Who can ascend this hill? Who can stand before this holy God? He can. He can. 
he alone can approach God because he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He fit perfectly the qualifications we just read, right? All four of them. He matches perfectly. Clean hands, pure heart. Do not lift up his soul before idols. Those first three alone. We know that's all true of him. He did not swear deceitfully. He's the only one who can ascend. He's the only one who can stand. Now what does that mean? What does that mean when David writes these words? Because he writes them and he leaves us all saying, It's impossible. But when you stand on this side of the cross, folks, it makes sense. It makes sense. It's almost like the Old Testament was written for us to say, What's the answer? We have to have an answer. And for years they said, What's the answer? And then God sent the answer. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the answer to what we needed. And I'm glad to live on this side of the cross. I admire those folks who live by faith, praising God and hoping that God had an answer. And they knew He would, but they didn't know what it was. But we do. We do know what it was. See, if you're like me, and I hope that you are, I desire to know this Lord. I want to be found pleasing in His sight. Don't you? I want to have access to heaven. Don't you? Just like David said, who can ascend? I'd like to have that. But I also know that nothing good dwells in me. Nothing good. I'm a sinner. I rightfully deserve to be cast out of the presence of God. Out of His sight forever. That's a rightful thing. I earned it because the wages of sin is death. Yet, our God is a merciful God. One that loves. One that gives grace. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us, even that while we were yet sinners. That, that stumps me every time. I stop and say, wow, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why he, where He met our needs. You know what's interesting? The key to it all is the death of Christ. It's the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. You know, forgiveness is freely given, but it was bought at a high cost. Jesus Christ died for us. You see, He paid the penalty for these sins. He, the wages of sin is death, and He died. He paid the price. And so now we read in Scripture that He's our advocate. That He intercedes on our behalf. He, he stands before God when we can't. He stands before a God that we can't stand before. And he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is a propitiation. That's a big word. That's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for those of the whole world. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful, and righteous. you like these words? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Has something changed? Yes. Yes. Through Him. This is what Romans says. I love this. Romans 5.2. Through Him, 
through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Look at that. Not only are we clean, we can stand. Stand. He says it. We can stand and exult in the hope of the glory of God. And then my favorite verse, got to be, Jude wrote this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Blameless with great joy. What a difference that is than the way we started. I said, how is this possible? It's because Christ did this for us, and he can ascend, can't he? He can ascend, and he can stand there so that we too can, because he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes to my Father but through me. But through me. So we can stand, you see? Do you understand what I'm saying? We can't approach, we can't stand there because of Jesus Christ. Because of His righteousness that we wear, His blood that cleanses, His forgiveness that is, has made us to where we can stand before God. See, here's a big picture, and I love this. If God can make this whole world out of nothing, surely He can clean you up. Right? That's, I see that picture. He's sovereign in creation, but he's sovereign in forgiveness. And the Pharisees would stand there and say, well, who can forgive sins but God? Exactly. God is the only one who can. Who is this King of glory? He's more than just a creator. He's a forgiver. He's a cleanser. He's the one who makes it so that we can approach. You see, I don't ascend to this holy place and stand there based on what I am or what I have done. It is completely holy upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ and His sacrificial work on my behalf. So that's the Bible's question and answer this morning. Who can ascend? Not you. Not me. Who can stand? Not you. Not me. Jesus Christ can. And when He did, He made the way for us that we can too. Isn't that amazing? You want to add something even more glorious to on top of that? He's going to say when we stand there, sit down right here next to me. Oh, what a change he has done in our lives. What a change. All right. So I told you what I've seen in Scripture, what it says, and I believe this with all my heart. Do you? Is that you this morning? When you answer the question, who can stand? Can you say, I can stand because I have faith in Jesus Christ? That's the invitation for you here this morning. You understand what he's asking you? He wants you to trust him by faith. You cannot do this, but he can. You cannot be forgiven in any other way but through Jesus Christ and his blood. Have you received that today? Because if you have not, there is no way you will ever ascend or stand before the Holy God. No way. But through Him, you will be able to do it forever. That's the big question on your heart, alright? If you need to know Christ as Savior, you know what's beautiful about this? You could talk to Him right now. Talk to Him right now, even while we bow our heads and start to pray. You could say, Lord, it's me. 
that this message is all about. I need a Savior. And you're my Savior. And I receive you by faith. You can do that even while we're praying. Let's go talk to Him. Heavenly Father, you know every single person in this room. And many of us are rejoicing right now for what you have done. Oh, we're so thrilled that you have made that difference in our life. That Jesus Christ is our Savior. He died for us that we might have access to your place. Thank you. Oh, such weak words. They, They need to be stronger than that. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done. That you should take people like us and make us children of God. And such we are. And someday we shall be like him, but we shall see him as he is. We shall dwell there forever in the presence of our God. Oh, we long for that, Lord, but we know it is true because you have said so. You are the King of glory, and you are our King. Lord, there might be some among us right now who needs Christ as Savior. It didn't dawn on them before that they could do this some other way, but they didn't know that there was no other way but through Jesus. But if you've been pressed out upon their hearts today and they realize their great need, draw them to yourself, for only you can save Show them their need for a Savior and unite that with faith, Lord. Grant them your grace and show them that they too have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Change lives today, we pray, Lord, as you've changed ours. And we rejoice in this today in Jesus' name. Amen.